Dawson in looking for Garza backside and in for the first goal in Atlanta United history from Yamil Assad. Take a look at history. Patrick final Jason Jones from the mothership and DirtySoulSoccer.com. Joe Patrick from 19.9 The Game, The Mothership Sometimes, and DitterySouthSoccer.com. I meant, didn't say dirt be right. That's okay. We'll try that again later. Do it in post. Do it in post. Anyway, we're all gathered here today to talk about someone leaving our lives that we weren't really expecting to. Um, it, it's, it's a real bummer. Joe, Charlie Culberson DFA'd. Um, oh, yeah, right. I'm not sure what we're going to do about <laughs> I know, I know. Oh, man. It's like we've forgotten how to podcast. It's been so long, Sam. How is East Atlanta Village treating you? East Atlanta Village is amazing. I've been to the cookout only twice. Only twice. So That's far. restraint. That's good Which restraint. Restraint, and I'm proud of myself um, for my grace under fire with the cookout sign <laughs> staring me down every single day. Um, speaking uh, of grace and beauty and a whole bunch of other adjectives, uh, we have a guest. Uh, Felipe Cardenas from The Athletic is with us. Felipe, how are we doing, man? What is up? I gosh, that was that's quite the introduction. <laughs> thank God, thank God, Grace, there's no video Grace on this pod duty. because <laughs> I don't, I don't, I don't look like that right now. But happy to be back, guys. Happy to be back. I haven't done this since we started Zoom calls. This is our primary method of podcasting. But I've been taking screenshots of people, like as oh, we great. do this, and a lot of them aren't flattering. So I'm kind of saving them up. It's blackmail. <laughs> Um, but nice. that'll, that'll come up later when I really need it, when I really need it. Um, Joe Patrick, uh, not Charlie Culberson, but PT Martinez does, does leave. And I, I guess that's what we'll start the show off with. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think we're going to talk a lot about PT today. We're, I think we're just going to have a, a nice little Atlanta United chat, talk about everything that's gone on since we last talked to Felipe. And I'm trying to remember when it, when was the point where we last talked, had, had the, had the local market games restarted yet? I'm not, I'm not sure. But we'll talk about Pitsy. We'll talk about Atlanta United. Um, it's been an interesting ride. I'm curious to hear more about this transfer from Felipe, who, of course, reported the story, because that was just a wild day. Whereas, like, you see the report of an $18 million yeah. bid. And normally, under any circumstance, I wouldn't really believe something like that. But the fact that it was coming from Cesar Luis Merlo, it mm -hmm. was like, wow, he's he's not wrong ever. He's, like, grade A, top tier. Um, well, I just want to talk about the speed of it. You know, yeah. we saw that rumor and then all of a sudden Felipe's saying he's gone. Did it happen that quickly for you, Felipe, or were you, did you have any kind of indication before that day? Okay. Th th great question. And it's something that, uh, I don't want to blow up my own spot on your show, but I'm, I'm working on that to, to, to figure all those details out. But, uh, I do remember if I go back, um, you know, in a couple of stories that I wrote earlier, this like. I think even before Frank DeBoer was let go, I brought up the fact that I felt that PT Martinez was going to be sold. Now, I wasn't thinking Middle East, but I wasn't thinking Europe either. I felt like PT Martinez had perhaps, maybe he had played himself out of those the, the move that he truly wanted to Europe, even though he told Argentine Radio uh, earlier this winter before the pandemic that he, Atlanta United had received an offer from a European club and from a big, in his words, a big club in Mexico. So that was before the pandemic. That was before February. So clearly, you know, there he, his agent, his camp were probably fielding offers or looking at offers. And perhaps Atlanta United at that point had already been thinking about it too. When I brought that up to Darren Eels in January, when I sat down with him, 
uh, for that state of the team piece on the athletic. I brought that up and, and Darren Eels and, and, and very classic Eels type poker face was, you know, what he told me was that uh, there's a difference between a serious offer and an inquiry and things like that. So to me, it wasn't like he was necessar- necessarily saying those offers didn't come in, but perhaps for Atlanta United, they weren't considered serious offers. So that was my first indication that, okay, perhaps PT Martinez will be gone soon and, and that there's still market value for him. Teams in Brazil were looking at him. So all of this is going on like in the winter. Uh, but I do agree that the deal uh, happened very quickly. Uh, I, I don't have the exact confirmation on how quickly, but I know my, my DMs uh, on Twitter, I was receiving DMs much earlier than the, the day that that transfer happened from fans and bloggers in the Middle East asking about PT Martinez. So that, you know, I started to think about like, I wonder if this is, if there's a market for him in the Middle East. He's a player that the Middle East would love that those types of leagues love him. Like he's like a Neymar type of signing for that region. He's that big of a player, I think. Uh, But to answer your question, yeah, as soon as I saw uh, Cesar Luis Merlo's tweet as well, uh, I think I just got on the phone, you talk to sources and all of a sudden you figure out that it's going on. It's, It's going to happen. And that's, that's when I broke that story. So uh, it, 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 I think for the fans, it seemed like it came out of nowhere, but I think we know, we understand that these deals don't always happen overnight. Well, you, you figured they were going to have to address it. And that was kind of the most interesting thing for me, just based on the timing of when that report came down was the fact that they had a game that night. <laughs> and yeah. and if it was true, there was no way they were going to be able to play a player who had an eight, uh, you know, a bid that was very much within the acceptable range, um, if not more so. So there's no way they were going to be able to play him. So they would have had to get out in front of that and try to address the reason why. And uh, I don't think the injury, a knock was going to, was going to cover their bases there. So that was a fascinating aspect of it. But I, I, I also think one of the interesting things about it was that since he's going to Saudi Arabia or going to, you know, it was a Middle East club that made this bid. I mean, maybe things have been in the work for works for a long time, but it's a lot easier to keep that under wraps because you don't have the media environment that's going to dig out these stories in Saudi Arabia as you would if the guy, if the player was heading to Europe or if he is even like maybe heading back to South America, Ten, you know, because of the media environment in those two continents, South America and Europe are so uh, aggressive, you know, those stories are going to leak out um, or they tend to at least. And so I think that, you know, we don't really know exactly how long uh, they were planning this transfer. But the other thing about Saudi Arabia is that those teams probably have so much money. They can just kind of decide they want to do it and make the offer. There's not a lot of like, you know, um, build up that takes place before something like that can drop. I was going to say, yeah, I, I think there's a oh, go ahead, Sam. Yeah, I think this entire thing happened so quickly because they walked up with that briefcase full of cash and opened it up. <laughs> And that was the right? The light, the the, the glow yeah. came up. It's like it's a glow exactly. Yeah. Tarantino style. Yeah. If y'all have not seen the Pity Martinez <laughs> announcement video, um, go find that shit immediately. <laughs> immediately. It's it looks like it was yeah. shot with like a 2007 camcorder and done with iMovie, but there are like literal briefcases of cash in this it's, shot and i think they i think there's an actor playing pt i think <laughs> yes it's a, it's yeah stunt guy yes so at a the hand end model <laughs> there's a hand model with an with a apple watch so mm-hmm. i don't know i think perhaps pt has that but in the, at the very end the guy puts on the you know al nasar jersey with his back to the camera and kind of points to the the name on the back but 
turn around. If it's PT, it's like, <laughs> yeah. show your, show your, show your face. So that was pretty funny. I mean, going back to what Joe said, yeah, I think there are probably a lot of factors involved, but to your point, yeah, I think these, these markets, these teams that have money to burn can really just come up uh, out of nowhere and, and, and really make it difficult for clubs to say no to that type of deal. Um, you know, PT Martinez, I think we understand, uh, was inconsistent here. And, and, and so there's, for a club like Atlanta United that whose model is to bring players in and sell them off, you could argue that perhaps PT wasn't necessarily going to be the same type of move as a Miguel Amarone. I think that there was a possibility if things would have worked out better that PT would have stayed here. I, mean, I really, I truly believe that, that he could have, if he started just killing it, scoring goals, he was happy. You know, all the turmoil that's going on didn't occur. Joseph doesn't get hurt. You know, that connection that we started to see in the, in the CONCACAF Champions League, that starts to come about. You know, PT's name would have been on a transfer list. Like, he would have been, you know, the talk would surround him. But who's to say that they don't offer him a long-term contract here in Atlanta? And, and he takes it because he's like, okay, I can be a star here. My family's comfortable. Uh, you know, I, I thought that was a possibility. But now... $18 million is just so hard to say no to. And, and I think even, you know, PT agreed to the, to the move, you know, multiple sources told me that he, he okayed that move, which doesn't always happen for players. I think fans think that it's not always like that. Sometimes the money is so good for the, for the clubs that it, the player has no choice. Uh, I think in this case, I, I'm sure it was a little bit of both, but PT considering the situation that he was in here, the situation that the club is in, Perhaps the the quote unquote this is a uh, this year is a wash like all of these different factors that are going on. Who knows? Perhaps what his family situation is like. I know that it's tough to be away from family. Maybe a change of scenery, even though they're not going back, they're not any closer to their family in Argentina. Sometimes just a change of scenery and a nice big bump in your bank account can can be something that just calms a little bit of those anxieties that I think he was dealing with while he was here in Atlanta. So yeah, it'll be interesting to see. I think he's a huge signing for them. Uh, if you're, if you follow him on Instagram, you can see that he's, it's not a bad deal for him where he's living. He's, he's at a hotel right now, but it's very nice, very posh. Uh, and it's going to be a, a move for him that I think he can still excel. Al Nasser is linked with Papu Gomez from Atalanta uh, at 15 million uh, euros. So like Joe mentioned, they have money to spend and they're trying to build a team that's going to compete in Asia and consistently qualify for the club world cup. I think it's a great move for Pitti just personally for him based on the, especially based on the way things have gone during his Atlanta United tenure. You know, he came in clearly wanting to make that move to Europe, kind of using Atlanta United as kind of an intermediary step. And things just didn't like, like we've talked about so much, you know, things didn't necessarily go according to plan. Maybe he did have a chance um, again, like you were saying before this season, it's very easy to forget how good the team looked in those early games before the pandemic against Matagua and the way that Pitti talked after that game as well. You know, he sounded like a totally different guy to me uh, at that point. He sounded like he had kind of used the offseason very positively, mentally more than anything, to just get himself in the right headspace. And I thought that he was set to have a really, really nice season. Um, but obviously things didn't materialize like that. So... I'm trying to put myself in the shoes of someone like that who you're he's 27, I think. Yeah. Um, yep. And 
you know, gosh, it's so hard to say. If, like, we're just assuming that he's getting an unbelievable pay raise, something that's going to set up his family with, you know, generational wealth. And I just don't know how you turn something like that down. And I'm actually happy for him that he has that opportunity to make that kind of money. And I still think if he signs, I think it was reported that he signed a four year contract. Um, you know, there's still opportunities for him to uh, he's probably not going to leave uh, if he's getting paid a ton of money permanently. But he could go on loan to, to a Europe, European club while he's there, potentially if a European team could pick up some of his wages. And then I think it sets him up to actually maybe return to Argentina when he's done and 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 see out the rest of his career playing for River Plate or, or playing in a more comfortable environment for him and his family. So I think all things, you know, when you, when you take all these things into account, it's a pretty good deal. I could see why um, a player like him would want to take that, even though it wasn't maybe his ideal course if he were to have told, if you were to have talked to him three years ago. So. Yeah, River Plate Twitter is blowing up like, People are saying, go, go get that money, PT, and then come back. Uh, other other guys are like, that's what happens when you go to MLS, career ruined. Uh, no longer, don't even think about the national team. Like, it, it's it's venomous. I think we no one is surprised at this point. If, you, if you're following MLS and you're, you're aware of the fact that these players from South America are coming here, the stigma that they deal with in their home countries. And one of the first stories I wrote about PT was in preseason, of 2019 and the title of that piece was how could you come to america because that was a quote that was from a quote that he was asked in the mix zone immediately after scoring the third and decisive goal in that copa Libertadores final against boca juniors in madrid i mean he had be, he had reached iconic status statue status at river plate um a century old club that's nothing to, to just like I don't know, dismiss. It's pretty crazy. Um, and so he's in the mix zone. And the one of the first questions that an Argentine reporter asked him was like, why are you going to America? Uh, and, and so I think PT's answer at the time was like, this club believes in me. I know we all remember those quotes, but even a player like him in that moment still had to deal with that type of question. I think it's it, it hasn't gone away with the fact that he's hasn't always impressed at Atlanta United for different factors. I don't think it was all on him. But then he moves to Saudi Arabia, which for so many in, in South America and Europe and anywhere on the world, you're thinking, all right, he's done. He's going to make his money, you know, have a, have a nice life. But we don't know that yet. I think, Joe, you're right. Like he could be there two years. He could eventually move to a big club in South America. Uh, for, you know, it doesn't have to be River Plate. It could be Flamengo. It could be Palmeiras, like rich clubs in Brazil that are fighting for, you know, internationally and regionally every season. And he has his money made and, and those deals can get done. But for now, uh, it's like, despite what you just said, Joe, that he has perhaps generational wealth, his family set for life, he still has to deliver. You know, that's yep. that's the key. Like now, even from afar, we'll, we will all be watching to see what he does, because perhaps that's all he needed was a change of scenery and, and a different league and different expectations. But if he has the same types of performances where he's pressing all the time, he's playing too fast. He's overthinking. He he he's instead of embracing the pressure, he's just kind of battling with it. Then we'll know that perhaps he does. He is in a bad place right now. I don't think so. I think he'll he'll do well. So I think we can all kind of agree that it's it's pretty much a net win for PT to to get out of here for the most part. He seemed pretty eager to get out of here. Mm -hmm. uh, he's getting the money. He's getting all those things. He's getting a reset. Um, but Felipe, you were talking about River Plate Twitter being 
all up in him about, you know, he, he failed. He, he didn't, he came here and that's what happens when you come to it's MLS. And obviously we've been here in Atlanta. We've seen examples of players coming from South America and going to bigger heights after that. Right. Um, which kind of leads me to this question that I've seen a lot of people kind of fighting about on Twitter and in the MLS just sphere in general. Um, was this a win for Atlanta? It's a win for Pitti, but is it a win for Atlanta in the sense that you obviously got your money? That's huge. Like to get 18 million out of this is, is wild, honestly. Because um, honestly, I didn't think he was. Um, but there's that perspective too of like, is the credibility damaged to a point that it doesn't recover or maybe it doesn't recover quickly? I'll, I'll start. I think it's, it is a bit of a hit on both the league and Atlanta United as far as their their approach both league and clubs approach to dps because in, in atlanta united's case miguel Amarone was and, and can, is still one of the top players that's ever come through this league i don't think that was the expectation perhaps tata thought that he could do that because tata already thought he was the best player in argentina so clearly i don't think he would have been surprised that miguel Amarone became one of the best signings in in league history here in mls but now even though PC Martinez was coming off something that Miguel Amaron has never accomplished in his career two international continental intercontinental uh, titles uh, and, and just the status that he that he had garnered at this big club it was I think it was Matt Doyle that used the term flex and I agree it felt like a flex move by Atlanta United um, we've just sold this guy Miguel Amaron for 30 close to 30 million he's going to Newcastle United what what else could we possibly do than to bring in the most popular player in South America right now, other than Lionel Messi? Uh, and that, that, that's, that is how popular and famous Peter Martinez was and continues to be. Uh, so it doesn't work out. It's a, it's a high profile signing. I think for some fans in this league, there, there was a little bit of like, who is this guy? You know, even though he was South American player of the year, if you're not watching soccer in that region, you're not so sure how good, he, how good is he? What is his game like? Is he like Miguel Amaron? Is he the replacement? So all these things were already just swirling around that signing. And the fact that he's gone after, you know, in less than 20 months, I think it hurts the league. I think it absolutely hurts the league because now everyone has to recalibrate. Every club recalibrates how they sign their, those high-profile DPs. Not every club because a club like Inter-Miami is okay with bringing in perhaps a 32, 33-year-old striker like Gonzalo Higuain, but Atlanta United is that's not their model. And so what do they do after this? After going for a 26-year-old DP that didn't pan out? What's how do they replace him? Uh, it's just like with Frank DeBoer. How do you go from that misstep and make sure that this next decision is one that brings positive news, not okay, a, a little bit more of the same? So it'll be interesting to see. I, I think it's a shame. I think it's a shame that PT Martinez didn't work out the way that we all expected him to, because He's he's a talented player, and he would have been great for this league. I think he could have been a real star in this country. I totally agree with you, Felipe, especially about the the signing itself of, of signing Pitti and it being like a flex. I think that's kind of like a message from the brand. Like that has become what Atlanta United's brand is: is this team that competes globally, both you know in competitions and in transfers, and is this you know big big club. That's kind of what they want to put out there and. Yeah, it didn't work out as as something I mentioned on Twitter um, last week, just saying like, I I don't I feel like when you say that he hasn't worked out, obviously, there are some fans that take issue with that, take umbrage with that. Um, 
I think we need to be open about the fact that mean, it didn't work you out. Mean, uh, you mean you mean you mean Parceros United? Uh, right? Yeah, yeah. They they are <laughs> primarily yeah. Um, sure. <laughs> my boys, they're my boys. But yeah, no, I I like that. I, I mean, I we get along. Parceros. I get I get along with them fine. But um, you know, like they they like to embrace debate, and I'm all I'm all about it. So no, um, I think we need to just be honest though, and I think Pitti would say that like he was not working yeah. out here, and really, I think that if there's a whole different discussion as to like who is to blame quote unquote for why this happened. That's not really a conversation I care that much about having, at least right now. I think that while I do agree with what you said, Felipe about it being damaging for the brand in a certain way, I think that, you know, when you just look at the dollars and cents of it financially, like it's a great deal <laughs> like for, for a 27 year old who's not working out. It was kind of feeling like a bit of an albatross situation around your neck in terms of, being able to make this a financially viable transfer from start to finish. Um, you know, maybe he would have gone back to South America, but surely you're selling it less than what you bought him for at that mm -hmm. point. So to get $18 million for him to get a, to make a profit, you can actually put a lot of that or not a lot of it, but you know, by MLS rules, you can add to your salary budget through that. I think like the $650,000, which is going to help this team. You know, it just makes a lot of sense. I kind of referred to it when I was just initially writing up the little report on uh, on Merlo's report for Dirty South Soccer, calling it like a, a deus ex machina type situation where it's like <laughs> yeah. it's like, wow, like I, I can't believe this out appeared for us. Now, maybe if things were if, if, if things were going better for Pitsy, if things weren't so disjointed, both with the league schedule and the way the team was performing, you know, maybe you make a different decision. But I just think it was. Um, especially at this point for Atlanta United with them being or not having a manager in place, a permanent manager, it just made a lot of sense for them. So that I, I think that, you know, okay. if okay. you would have asked them at the beginning when they signed the deal, if they would have taken 18 million to a Saudi club, you, you know, I don't know how they would have felt about that at the time. But I think when you consider the situation the team was in, I think it made a ton of sense. I just want to point yeah. out that, uh, you know, I, I called it a clout signing well before Matt Doyle did. So I just I just want to point that out. <laughs> oh, there you go. First to report. First to Matt report. Doyle, give me some Heineken 0, 0.0. I swear to God, <laughs> stop holding that on me. Um, Lane Kiffin bringing in his flashy five-star dual threat. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. But y'all talking about the brand, and I think that's a, a big part of this. And I think for me, this is an indication that they – have not only punted on this year a little bit, but they're really eager to to wash their hands of everything that's kind of been associated with this year in particular, and they're ready to to try and re and try to get back to to the identity that was there in 2017-2018. Um, I don't know how they do that exactly going forward, but but getting 18 million for a guy that is not only associated with that, probably somewhat part of the the root cause of it, in just terms of being ineffective in the system he was set up in and just not really being able to to put out in a way that really kind of matched what Atlanta United needed. Um, I think that's a that's a clear indication of oh, this is going in my so I agree I agree with Joe that and what you said about the brand Sam is spot on. Um, there's a lot of equity that I think the front office still has a lot of equity as well. They've been so successful they've been part of the success but even when they're winning there's pressure on a club like Atlanta United if you don't think that this club was under extreme pressure in 2018 to win that tournament, like you're not following because even though they won, there was a lot of pressure on that team, on that coaching staff to get it done. 
so so that but again that that built the brand it helped build the brand it gave the brand and the front office even though there's been changes there as well a lot of goodwill here within the city and and within MLS now that they haven't followed through on that um and the fact that you know Carlos Bocanegra told me last summer that he oh, he his goal's objective is to avoid a rebuilding year that is succession planning they are totally rebuilding i mean there's no there's no other way to look at it this is a rebuild uh and and we're witnessing it and so yeah i think you could say that atlanta united's probably punted um and that's that's out of character that is out of character for for a club like this to to kind of to admit to that and to have to do that as a way to rebuild the the culture of the team so yeah i think there's there's plenty to to look at now now something that i just told drake hills i was on his podcast um before jumping on with you guys we're talking about nashville we're talking about atlanta and uh, the one thing that he brought up that I thought was interesting because it's a it is a parallel is the notion that if you don't have a striker, you know, just find your two most creative players and hope that they fill in for that striker. So, in in Atlanta's case, and, and this this goes back to what Joe said about pointing the finger and like whose fault is it? Like why didn't PT work out? Clearly, Joseph's injury, Joseph Martinez's injury, was like that just caused so much chaos. But even from the top down, from Carlos Bocanegra to Frank DeBoer when he was still the manager to some of the players, all of a sudden PT and Barco were like, that's it. They're going to play the false nine and one guy is going to be the second striker and they're going to score the goals and we're going to be fine. And it's just in hindsight, that's so difficult to do. And that's what Nashville is going through now. That's why I bring that up. They have Mukhtar and, and Leal and they're creative players. They're probably the best players, but they don't have a nine. So now they're, you're asking them to find space, get on the ball, create, score goals all these things that just, it's hard to do that in this game. And so I think PT and Barco were constantly put in this position to just like to, to over deliver. Um, and that's just not going to happen, especially in a league that's so, 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 you know, close, the gap is closing, the parity is there. And then you're asking, you're getting in the minds of these players, like, okay, I know you want to find the ball and create, but we need you to be close to goal. We need you to go to, to go at players find the goal strike you know take shots like all these things that you're you're asking the players to just change their chemistry over all of a sudden so that would that is part of pt's story that's part of barco's story if we're going to talk about hitting or missing and transfers because a lot of that a lot of that responsibility to score fell on them when joseph was out and that did not work out either yeah, when when we talk about well, one thing I've heard a lot for the you know the, again the reasons why Pitti maybe didn't work out or why things have looked so bad this year um, is that he wasn't played he wasn't utilized right he wasn't played in the right positions et cetera et cetera that kind of thing I think that you you've reported on this Felipe I think it was more that like there wasn't specific instructions not just for those players but for the players around them to be able to build a cohesive tactical structure that allows both for those players to succeed and then for the team to also succeed. So to me, it's not necessarily about like, didn't have the freedom, didn't have the whatever. It was actually almost like too much of that. Like he, there, there needed to be more clear passages of play in the final third, a, a clearer idea of what you want to do. If you go back and watch a Tata Martino uh, team, like the passages of play that lead to goals are so clear and defined and you can tell that they have been drilled in these specific mo uh, actions over and over again. And it just didn't never it never felt like that under Frank, especially this year. And 
for obvious reasons. You don't have the same kinds of training time. You've got players who are unsettled by all these different things. So I think that that really threw a wrench into things. And um, I I also wanted to talk about Barco because I think that he actually like he's now a very important figure uh, when it comes to the club and what the club wants to do, because we talked about this being kind of a rebuilding year. Um, but that's not the message that Darren Eels is putting out there. You know, he's saying, they don't want to say that. Like, I they know, don't want to say the word rebuild never because they, they've got season. They've got people who have season tickets deferred to next year. And, <laughs> um, you know, that seriously, like that's what these sure, things right. come down to. Like they're, I, I think they're worried about the, the, you know, how fans perceive them and things like that. So that's really interesting because I so think, you know, I don't, perceptions like everything. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So I'm, I'm just guessing here, but just based on the, when Barco was signed, I think that he probably has one more year left on his contract after this one. And that means that if you want to sell him for money, you've got to do it at the latest after this season. But if you do wait that time, uh, that's a risk, you know, like if he, if he, if he has a bad injury or something like that, and you're not going to be able to sell him in the next window, that's going to be a major problem for you. So like if it were me, if I if like I'm a risk averse person, I think the risk averse move is to actually take less money for him and sell him in this window now. And again, like Pitsy, you you open up uh, more flexibility for the next manager, the next kind of regime, so to speak, to come in and, and build the squad how they want it. Um, and there are, you know, there, there are rumors that he's going to Sevilla, Manchi, apparently. Apparently, Delafeu is like the number one uh, uh wanted guy for, for Sevilla and Barco's the kind of the backup target. plan. Yeah. yeah. I think they value, I was reading a story last night. They, they value Delafeu at 15 million euros. And so Barco, I would think would be valued at less than that. Um, so I, it's hard to see them making their money back here either. But I, you know, something I was saying in regards to Pithy on Twitter last week, which was that by selling a DP, the money is part of it, but also it's just like the, if you don't have a DP spot open, there's an opportunity cost that comes with that where you're you can't sign somebody that you might want to uh, in an ideal world. So, um, you know, I if it were me, I would I, I would take the the less risky approach and go ahead and get what you can for Barco. Um, and that way he's not playing tentatively, you know, with with players. A lot of times when they get down, when they run down these contracts, it, it's I can totally understand why you would go out there. Not that you're intentionally not giving maximum effort, but it's like you don't want to ruin career prospects by getting hurt or something like that. So you just, that affects performance and um, it's going to be a fa- fascinating to watch how this unfolds here. We know, I think we know that Barco definitely is not out there trying to not get hurt based on what we now yeah. know. He told Stephen glass yeah. when he came out the field against Orlando, Stephen glass, I mean, God bless him. He's so, he's so honest. Uh, and, and, and I think that says a lot about him. You know, he's kind of just like, yeah, this is what he said. He told, I don't understand Spanish, but later uh, another Felipe, he mentioned Felipe, yeah. another Felipe that works for the club, uh, later told him that Barco, when he came off against Orlando, had said, hey, we're trying to we're tr- trying to win a game here. So and I like, how, know, I I like Barco, how Glass was like, yeah, I, I know that. <laughs> yeah, yeah. He's like, I'm aware of that player. <laughs> yeah. um, so which is which is just was great. A little exchange from Stephen Glass when he told us that because he was not phased by it at all. Um, but yeah, I think Barco is such an interesting situation because if, if I'm, if, let's start with the player first. If I'm Ezekiel Barco, I think he's frustrated too. I think a lot yeah. of the players are frustrated, uh, not just the South Americans, but I do believe just from, from what I'm hearing from, from what Jeff Lorenowitz told all of us on, on Saturday night, 
about Franco Escobar just kind of dealing with that frustration, a lot of change goes back to what I've said all along. Like these guys come here, um, you know, they put a lot on the line. They put their reputations on the line. They're coming. They believe in the, in the, in the quote unquote project that they're, that they're coming to to MLS. They want to win because they don't want to be part of a club that doesn't win. And then you're in the United States. You're not, you're away from home. So I think all these players committed to that in, in Atlanta, then they see the culture change. Then they deal with Frank DeBoer and all of that taste success, but ultimately they're just never comfortable. I think now we're seeing that frustration come to light. You can tell in the face of the body language and Barco, if I'm him, it's like, okay, if I'm stained, if like, if to Joe's point, if you're like, if you, if he's told by the club, we want you to stay, we can get a better deal next year. My first question would be like, who's the coach? Then who's going to be my coach? Mm -hmm. Because if it's going to be another situation where, the coach doesn't know how to use me or he's playing me as an eight, he's playing me as a 10, he's playing me as a, a right winger. I'm a, I'm a false nine. And, and again, it, ultimately that affects his production and his numbers, which is what scouts look at a lot of times. What, how is this player producing? If I'm Barco, I'm concerned about that, which and at the same time, he may be like, all right, I want to, you know, maybe now's the right time. If Atlanta United is already talking to their head coach, which that could be the case, maybe they already know who their head coach is and they're just kind of, letting him do his work and make decisions regarding the roster or whatever that may be. I'm sure that manager is like, am I going to have Barco or not? Like, yeah. don't surprise me when I come in and then tell me Barco's gone. There's no way a new manager and the type of manager that I'm assuming they want to bring in is going to put up with that. So that so the, the Barco situation, I think, will determine whether or not, I think it'll say a lot about who the next manager is and what, the, what Atlanta United is doing is going to do in the future. Let's take a quick break because we need to get an add in. But I do want to nail for a little bit further down on this discussion of um, how the front office and whoever the next manager will kind of work with each other. Um, but before we get into that, let's get into a quick break. And before we get back into the show, did want to remind everybody that this uh, episode, the special episode with Felipe Cardenas is brought to you by uh, Lucid FC. Uh, that's Lucid Footwear and Clothing. I didn't um, expect that. I didn't know you were going to say that. That's incredible. Oh, yeah. Wow. Yeah. Have you, have you have you have you gotten any gear yet from? No. Us? Why have we not done that? We need we need to get we, we need to get on that. We need to get on oh, that. You're 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 pretty close to them now. Of Heineken zero point zero from Matt Doyle. <laughs> yeah. I, want, I want some damn lucid. <laughs> well, you're closer to them now. Now that you're in the city, because they're located right up in Buckhead. They're uh they're local, um, family family owned business and uh, have some really cool clothes. So definitely recommend everybody check them out at uh, lucidfc.us. Uh, I wanted to get into, again, like we were talking about kind of this managerial situation that's coming up. And I'm really fascinated because it seemed to me like there were kind of different approaches as to how the manager, what well, I'm, I'm going to call him the manager, the manager and the front office work together when you talk, when you look at the Tata Martino era versus the Frank DeBoer era. And it definitely seemed like mm -hmm. Tata Martino had a lot more say in the way that the squad was built. He had he definitely had input in players he wanted to bring in. Miguel Amaron, we know, was a guy that he personally called up and asked him to come join his project. We heard him talk about Yamil Assad saying, like him trying to convince him to do a new deal and come back to Atlanta in 2018. Um, Joseph, he knew all about Joseph. Joseph was another one, yeah. Can I just say then that like I think the basic thing there is he was just more prepared probably. Like, yeah, I think so. I, I would. I definitely think like the 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 story about him showing up with that the binder, the binder. Yeah. soccer players. Yeah, 
Yeah, I mean that says a lot. Uh, he was an obsessive coach, Tata Martino. But again, his 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 history and his experience allowed him to know who these players were. Like Joseph Martinez, for instance, he as as Argentina national team, the Argentina national team coach, he played against Venezuela in that 2016 Copa America here in the United States. Joseph, as as Tata told us, was a handful, and he's the type of nine that that he really likes because he he can play. You know, he he's he's good on the ball. He's moving. He can you can drop him back. He can play as a quote unquote ten. He gets behind the lines, and and he's not just finishing. His job isn't just to finish. And 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 remember, Tata came into Atlanta, and and Kenwin Jones was the, the the star striker. And I think from what I've heard, and from what we can assume, Tata was like, uh, no, that's not going to be my striker. <laughs> I know a guy named Joseph Martinez. So again, you bring up such an important piece of the puzzle, Joe, because. You know, Tata was a different type of manager and a different time for the club as well. He probably had a little bit more say because they were building the very first iteration of of Atlanta United, but also clubs in South America and coaches in South America. That's how they work. That's how it is. They, they literally ask for players. I want this player. I know this guy, uh, the technical director role in South America isn't traditional. It's not necessary. It's not the way it is here. Uh, I think here, technical directors have a lot more control, mm-hmm. if you will. Yep. Um, same with Europe. Uh, it's very much like the European model. In South America, like that that type of role is just is, is kind of like a new thing in South America. Not every club has, I think they call them managers, actually. Uh, the, the It's like a GM, essentially. Uh, that is like a new in vogue thing in South America. So that tells you that the manager has a lot of power in South America. And so that, I think that's always a dynamic that Atlanta United will have to deal with like mm-hmm. Carlos Bocanegra, Darren Eels. They'll have to look at themselves and be like, okay, how much control are we giving up? Like how much are we delegating? Uh, because I spoke to an agent uh, recently and he told me, you know, every, every manager in, in every, the perfect situation for any manager is that, they get to the club and they have that type of control, that type of say, but we know that's not always the case. Mm-hmm. So it'll be interesting to see if, if Atlanta wants a South American manager, they're going to have to kind of work on that relationship. Well, that's exactly it. And it's a reason why I kind of felt bad for Frank DeBoer to an extent where he didn't seem mm-hmm. to have much say in the personnel that was coming in. So he was just kind of Agree. working with what the front office gave him, which was not really the same circumstances from what I can tell. Uh, as it was with Tata Martino. Of course, when it comes to the guys who are lower on the roster, you know, the the guys mm-hmm. who are more role players on the team, that's stuff that you'll delegate to just, you know, front office, you take care of that for me. We want these types of players, but I don't really care specifically. Like Michael Parkers. I don't think Tata Martino is like, hey, I want Michael Parkers. Yeah. Clearly that was, you know, Carlos Bocanegra, his experience and 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 knowing the league and and other factors and agents and relationships came into play in order for a Michael Parkhurst to come in and be the first captain. Uh, I'm sure Tata was like, let me, let me see the kid play. Yeah. He saw that he was a, a ball playing center back and, and, and that anticipates and, and all these things. And he was like, all right, I'm down. Um, you know, so, so yeah, I think clearly there is a little bit of both of that happening, but the front office is now going to need to, well, I think they need to, if, if they want to get a top manager in, they're going to have to take a step back. I think in terms of, Mm -hmm. um, how kind of top down the personnel decisions are, I think that they're going to have to go back to the model that worked with Tata Martino, where there's input from the manager. And then you have 
guys like Paul McDonough, who, of course, is no longer at the club anymore, but who who are kind of the cap wizards and can try to make things work as much as they can with what the manager wants. I just don't see them being able to bring in a top manager, especially with how things went under DeBoer um, and just keep kind of the same modus operandi going. Now, if things had gone well with DeBoer, maybe they could have make it they could make a better case to a potential manager. But um they might not be in a spot where they're trying to hire a manager if things had gone that well. So, so you're, you're asking a Hall of Famer to take a step back now. I don't know if you don't do that. Oh, my gosh. That's a good point. That's a good point. Uh, yeah. What we did not need uh, was an ego inflation. <laughs> that was not, oh goodness. not the best plan. But when, but when, when, Darren le- when Darren left Tottenham, they were working with a director of football head coach model. Uh, Mauricio Pochettino yeah. was specifically – I remember because I had not seen this before. This was kind of my first introduction to it. He was hired specifically as a head coach and uh, – uh, I can't remember his first name. Baldini, someone Baldini was the director of football and he was like he was making the decisions. Then they went out and made a bunch of terrible signings. And then I think that <laughs> that, that changed kind of quickly. But um, they're just two styles of management. At, totally. I would look at Leeds if you haven't. And I have not finished it, but I, I, I think I'm like on episode six or something of the Leeds uh, United documentary on, on Prime Video. Like, check that out, because I think. That's a really good example of how that relationship can work. And you're talking about Bielsa, one of the most stubborn and unique types of coaches. And it's like, if he doesn't, he knows the player that he wants. Uh, and that, that, that decision maker that is in technical director role, the GM role, whatever you may want it. I think he's Portuguese or Spanish and um, he's like really fiery in, in that documentary, but they have a relationship. They have an understanding exactly the type of player that they want how to build that project. So it has to work out. And I think to, to you guys made a great point because now they, they didn't, it wasn't successful with this model with Frank DeBoer who, who did not under, did not know the league, even though in his press conference, he told us he's been watching MLS for a long time. I don't know how, 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 if I really believe that, um, yeah. because then when I interviewed him in the exclusive after he was let go, he's like, oh, it's really tough to watch MLS. You gotta be <laughs> yeah. up at three in the morning. <laughs> Cause I asked him, are you going to watch Atlanta United? Like the rest of us. Yeah. <laughs> it was funny at the end of that interview. And I, I, I tweeted this later, it just like fell flat on its face, but it was like, I asked, I asked Frank DeBoer, are you going to watch, are you know, are you going to follow Atlanta United to see like what, what happens? He's like, well, I'm not going to stay up till 3 a.m. I'll tell you that. He should um, sign up for but, Sam's newsletter and just just get the rundown yeah. every morning. <laughs> yeah, that'll be awesome. Uh, but but again, it didn't work out when you're bringing a coach that has a lot to learn. I think they took a long term approach with Frank DeBoer that did not work either because what was successful was the short term approach with the with Tata knowing that after two years he might bounce, but you're going to have a trophy mm-hmm. and you're going to have a, a, a DP that that makes history, maybe two. So that's what they need to go back to with DeBoer is like this evolution or not revolution, whatever you want to call it. It clearly was an overhaul that did not work out. So to Joe's point, the next manager is going to know all these things and is going to question, what am I walking into? Who am I working with? Mm -hmm. Uh, What type of relationship will I have? What type of players do I have at my disposal? What is your transfer strategy right now based on moving PT Martinez what how healthy is joseph going to be next season so a lot of questions that the the manager that brings it that comes in is going to have to embrace and and who knows if 2021 is is just part of this rebuild 
you know, because again, Joseph is not, it's going to be tough for Joseph. We haven't even talked about that yet. Yeah. It's a big time injury. It's going to be tough for him to just come in and start killing it. On top of that, he, he seems to be eating just about every photo I've seen of him. <laughs> he did the Orlando video the other night. He had an arepa with him, and it looked delicious, but I was like... Have you had an arepa? Have you had an oh, arepa so good. before? Yes. Okay, and plus those are Venezuelan arepas, which are... They, they, they open them up and s- stuff it with meat and potatoes and chicken. The Colombian arepa is just flat, and you can put those things on top of That's it. That's the one I had, but, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, but the Venezuelan arepa, and you know, he's his grandma's there making those daily. So I mean, he's got a lot of temptation there, man. He's in trouble. Yeah. Well, um, should we talk about the season? Does I anybody want to? Does anybody want to talk about what's going on in the field? Because it's pretty ugly. Yeah, we listen. I was on. Uh, go ahead. Go, well, let me say one thing sure. about the season. I was I was talking to Max Bretos yesterday, and we were like, man this season like what is it you know like what 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 is this season and and how engaged are the fans going to be moving forward if if this phase three thing and whatever happens like are fans going to be allowed like what's going on with the pandemic it's going to be tough to ask the fans to stay involved to stay engaged and you brought this up before i think it was joe might have been sam but about not having oh yes about the tickets and like what the how the club is knows that that there are fans kind of wondering what am i doing what am i doing next year you know Giannis Mahalik on on Sirius XM uh last week said when i was on he was like after i'd hung up then he starts talking about this he was like you know Atlanta United is lucky that fans aren't in the stands right now yeah like they could see that as a bit of a bit of luck that because if the fans were in the crowd or were filling that stadium i don't know if they'd be filling it but if they were there you would know how unhappy they are and right now it's just all their only outlet is is social media. Uh, but if you know, we we've seen that before. Frank's first game, he was booed off the pitch. Imagine what would they imagine what the fans would be doing with if this season were normal and the results were the same. So it's tough. It's tough for all of us that have to continue to kind of like cover this, not knowing what's going to happen. So one of my jobs as part of putting together a daily newsletter for for the mothership is to kind of very carefully examine social media for all the teams and try to include anything interesting I see. Um, but so I'm looking at team accounts a lot and I've noticed a lot of teams having drive-ins and like watch parties and things like that. They're socially distant and safe, but where people can come together and watch the team. Do you know who has not had anything like that at all and wouldn't even consider it right now? Atlanta United, because that's exactly. They do consider it though. Yeah. I mean, it's, they, they, didn't do it though. So I mean, they didn't do it. They didn't do it. So my thought is has been for a while now that they just don't even want to really even acknowledge what's yeah because the team is bad. Yeah, I mean to to Felipe's point, what what uh, Giannis was saying was that like I don't think the fans would be filling up the stadium <laughs> if they were allowed to come in. Like, and that would be bad for the brand. You know, they've they again they build themselves as being this team that has the the biggest stadium the most fans the highest attendances and i don't think they'd well i mean maybe in relation to other mls teams they would still be getting the, yeah. the raw total numbers uh, especially if they're counting like season tickets that are sold that uh, despite whether the person shows up or not but um yeah i mean i i think to an extent that that's a that's a really interesting point by him but and and they would definitely be booing. <laughs> they would and, be booing. But we don't know if the crowd would 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 be the difference maker for this team. Yeah. I mean, I think that's a lot of us are talking about that. That's brought up a lot. The players have brought it up 
some of the top players around the world have brought it up about how difficult it is to honestly play these games with no fans and like get up for them and motivate yourself. So it's not just an Atlanta United problem, um, but clearly just the talent level is not there this, this season. Uh, they're really struggling with who they are and they're being open about it. So this isn't a narrative that we're coming up with. Uh, the team has acknowledged that they're not as confident that they're dealing with that in front of goal. And in general, I think there's, you're watching this team with this dilemma of we need to be attacking again. Okay. And inner manager, Steven glass has, has taken on that responsibility and he wants to do it. But at the same time, I honestly still feel like they just, they don't want to lose though. Yeah. They don't want to take any more L's. Uh, and so you can see it in during match days that there, that tug of war, do I, do we step forward? Do we sit back? Sometimes three guys go and four guys stay back. It's it's not consistent. It's not cohesive yet. And I don't think you can expect that. But that's that's where this team is from from a talent level. It's not all there. They're, the the starting eleven is not consistent enough to where they have this chemistry that also defined Atlanta United for so many years. Uh, and now they're not. They don't want to lose. They, they're not sure. They don't want to. They don't want to be that team that's like that has seven, eight guys in the opponents there because they don't want to get caught. They don't want to play from behind. And so there's a big psychological battle happening every day within the club. And it's going to, I think that'll define the season. You know, that I think heart, confidence, belief is it's more about that than it is tactics right now, mm-hmm. because we know like, yes, 10, 10 teams get in, but if, if Atlanta United qualifies for the playoffs, I believe they will. They're not going, going to be a favorite. Yeah. So they're going to have to deal with that as well. Like, you know, how do they embrace this year? Like to this, that's how you open up the segment. Like what is this year? How do, how does the club even feel about it? So it's going to be tough. It's going to be interesting to see how they overcome that. You talk about the hesitancy and it's, it's amazing how often this team is at a numbers disadvantage everywhere, everywhere. It's, it's wild. And you, and you see it going back and it's, it's interesting to look at something like the Orlando game where there were so many chances for Orlando that didn't end up like registering, next year or anything like that because players were scrambling back and people like George Bella were having to make these incredible sliding stops uh, but but even still if you look at the analytics right now it could be so much worse it really could yeah. it's it's like a minus six expected goal differential right now um and I don't know if that's going to get better anytime soon it really really might get worse which is um Interesting, to say the least. You know, Sam, the thing about what you said about Bello, it's such a good point because when when that happened and that play happened against Orlando, Bello, you know, tra- tracks back, finds the angle to to just nip. I think it was Michelle, Michelle, who 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 got who broke in. But and, and like, yeah, a lot of guys are like, oh, great play by Bello. I felt like Bello's body language was kind of like, oh man, like that was tough. Yeah. And like, it, I think if you remember in 2017, 2018, that happened all the time, but it was like part of the plan, mm-hmm. right? You know, it was like part of it. Like you had Parker's was going to be one V one. And and you had to rely on him uh, to be able to snuff something out, you know? And when Frank comes in the first interview I did with Parker's, that was one of the first things he pointed out about like how everything was changing is that that was something that Frank did not want to put his team. He didn't want to put his team in that type of situation. And I feel like, a guy like Michael Parkers was kind of like down with that. He's like, all right, yeah, that's cool. Like, I don't always want to be on an island. Uh, but again, hindsight, I think that's that's how this team should be playing. That's how they should believe that they can be successful. LAFC, look at them. They're, they score, they win goal, games 5-3 when in, if they lose a game or if they tie a game 3-3 or 2-2 or don't have a perfect performance, 
the question to Bob Bradley is always, are you concerned about the defense? Are you concerned? And he's never concerned. Mm-hmm. Yeah, he knows they're not great there, but he's confident in them. And he's and he's like, we, we've got to keep going forward. So mm-hmm. that's where Atlanta United, that's the that's one of the steps that they've taken backwards as, as far as that identity piece. We talk a lot about that. And that was part of it. That was part of the excitement. That was part of the brand. So there was a a moment last year. Well, obviously, there was the moment where Atlanta United kind of made their transformational change in the middle of the season, going from that kind of 4-3-3 to the three, back to the 3-5-2. And I remember distinctly, under the 4-3-3, it always seemed like they were, again, trying to manage the game, trying to control the game, doing all these things. And then the first game when they kind of went back to the 3-5-2, it wasn't a great representation of what I'm going to talk about because they were up a man like that entire game against Houston. But I think the next game was on the road against LAFC. Um, or if it wasn't, this LAFC game is the first time I remember distinctly remember seeing this, which was that at the end of the game, when like as soon as the final whistle blew, Leandro Gonzalez Perez, like everybody like fell to the ground exhausted because they had run their ass off in that game. Again, like you were saying, both going forward, but also, you know, when you go forward, there's a lot of tracking back and, and, and scrambling back that you have to do. But the team always performed best when it was asking the players to give that. Um, and yes, it, it, yes. interestingly enough, it's something that I've been as a Tottenham fan. I've been watching this documentary, the Amazon Prime one. And uh, it's something that Jose Mourinho noticed as well with Tottenham, where it was like the players were not exhausted by the time the game by the time full whistle was blowing and the best teams in the world typically are even even if they are managing games you know when you're playing at the highest level it requires a ton of energy and it brings me back to um something that i remember the players were bringing up when they were discussing the new cba when we were in the middle of the pandemic and they were trying to figure out how to start the season again and this was specifically in relation to the orlando tournament but i think that it's it it was relevant to the orlando tournament and still relevant which was how do we create playing conditions that are going to allow teams to um, perform optimally, you know, to, to both for players to, to show their best representation of what they are individually. And then also for teams to be able to perform to the expectations that they would have. And I think that it's a really tough situation for Atlanta United right now, trying to make this big change in what you are on the field tactically why when you're in these conditions of just not having time on the practice field to drill it like they had tons of practice time um, between these two segments of the season but you can only do so much and kind of respond to certain faults that you have in the team um you know that you only find out when you start playing matches and so it's very i find that the glass seems frustrated with this and the players i think also seem frustrated that they don't they aren't in the conditions that allow them to perform optimally Totally true. And I, and I, one thing I do remember by covering Mexico under Tata Martino last summer, and when we would run into the player and the Mexican players in the, in the mix zone, they, they, it, for me, it was like deja vu. They were saying a lot of the things that you know, like Gonzalez Perez and, and Tito Villalba and even Lorenowitz and Parkers were saying during that 2018 run uh, with, under Tata Martino, like the way that you have to take risks and you have to accept risks and you have to, uh, you know, play within yourself and accept mistakes because what you do on the practice field eventually will translate. And when I sat with Tata before the pandemic, which was February in Dallas, that was something that he reiterated again, because he doesn't have the national team. The, the, the time you have with your team is, is it's much different. You, you get them at kind of like a different, different moments of the calendar. And then you need to like really work hard. 
And this was coming off a four nothing loss to Argentina for Mexico. When I asked him about that, he was like, we just have to keep going. The players know how we want to play. They see it in practice. We do it in practice. It's, it's repetitive. And it gets to a point where for us as a national team, our trials, our friendlies, or, or when we get to try these things out are in friendlies. Uh, with Atlanta United, it's, it's, I think right now they don't know who they are. They mm-hmm. don't know what they're supposed to be doing. There's so much emphasis on just getting through the season, getting through these games. And at the same time, Stephen Glass promising that the, the tactics are going to get, get better, the play is going to get better. But clearly the players just aren't sure who they are right now. And you know, I think on, on Twitter last week, I brought it up that Franco Escobar just doesn't look like the same player. And, and it's not that he, his form has just completely dipped. It's like, it's a, it's a personality thing. Um, you know, he's a soft-spoken guy. Mm-hmm. Like, I think, yeah. you know, like when we talk to him, he seems very soft-spoken, but he was a guy that really came up under Tata Martino. Tata Martino made this guy. Okay. He literally made him into who he is in MLS because he wasn't playing that new rules. He was either a center back or a right back and like kind of floating in between those situ- those positions. He comes here, Tata turns him into this like just crazy gung-ho wing back, basically a wing back before the wing back be- became such an important piece of Atlanta United's history. But he had that confidence. He talked about that confidence and now he doesn't look like the same player. And I think he's an example of a guy that's going through so much change and not just change around the club, but what Lauren Woods told us on Saturday changes tactically that they're having to accept like how what am i supposed to do now as a right back what is my what is my right winger doing in front of me what is Lennon going to do like all these things happen and i think that is where this team is right now it, it really is i know it sounds like a cliche but they just don't know who they are they don't know what their identity is and if you don't have that practice time which i i agree with you joe that, that is tough for steven glass and his staff like then what do you focus on i think that's why i go back to if i were him it's got to be just like you will not get beaten on on effort tonight. The, the the game will come to you, but don't get beat on effort. I think a lot of this comes back to me for just this idea that, that Frank tried to fix so much that wasn't broken. Like you, you talk yeah. about Island and everything like that. Atlanta's defense was still really good. And Teodal Football harps on this a lot. He came in and tried to, to correct things on a defense that was really, really solid and not only uh, – giving up actual goals, but giving up expected goals as well. I mean, they were not allowing a ton of chances that were putting them in dangerous positions, even though they were on that island every now and then. You kind of start tinkering with that, and now that's a little domino on the way to, to where we are now. Um, you're trying to co- collect the pieces from the biggest domino that just fell, which is Frank DeBoer finally leaving, and now you're trying to gather yourself back up again. Yeah, I, I remember when, when both Leandro Gonzalez-Perez and Peter Martinez kind of spoke out if you want to even call it that, I don't, I don't think it was them speaking out considering, considering what we know now and what like Brad Guzan has said, what everyone has said, they were just being honest to us yeah, last, sure. last summer. Okay. Uh, and PT Martinez goes on Fox Argentina does not at any point rip on Frank DeBoer even says, I, I respect him. I like him as a person, but his, what he could not accept was that the, the notion that he wanted to play safe. And there's a phrase in South America, the translate, if I translate it, it's, not going to work out but it's literally like you 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 know the a defensive stance in soccer or even football whatever it may be like i'm gonna i'm gonna say ass on, on your pod you, you stick your ass out right you stick your ass out you're, you're you're in that defensive position and in argentina that type of positioning is a pragmatic approach it means that you're not on the front foot 
you're you're ready to go back. You're ready to to absorb. And that was the term that one of the the reporters that was asking PT about this brought up to PT, and PT was like, "Yeah, that that that's what we're doing. We're you're sitting at midfield and you're ready to go back instead of pushing and pushing and pushing." And that was something that the players just couldn't accept. And I think there's there's still there's still a little bit of that indecision lingering around the club right now. It, I, I, when you met, tell that, it, it totally reminds me. I just think of LGP actually, um, because whenever it, the game was in a situation where it was managing it, especially under Frank, you know, it's like if you gave him too much time to think, it's all of a sudden you become you, you're caught between two minds, and then you mess up. As opposed to if you're just on it, you know, just you're not even thinking, you're just trying to win your battles and things are a little bit more chaotic, it actually kind of focuses you and allows you to direct all your energy into every action that you're, that you're, that you're making on the pitch, and you're actually a more effective player, even though the, it might sound like faulty reasoning like to be more chaotic. But I, just, I, I mean, like we've talked about, I just, I've always felt like Atlanta United, when, when they're playing on a knife's edge, that's when they're best. And sometimes, they're you're, gonna, better, sometimes right? you're gonna get burned too. You know, like when you totally. play like that, sometimes it's not gonna work out. And I think that that's where some of the frustration comes in where it's like, ah, oh, you're playing like this when you don't have to, but I think you kind of do have to. Like you have to be on that edge um, in order to get the best out of you. Can I say it's kind of fun that we're like literally watching Atlanta United grow up. Like we have like the young kid <laughs> in that first season and then they kind of get a little more confidence, they get older. And now we're in this like emo teenager version. Where they're yeah. like, Love is a ghost and who am I? And they're just trying totally. to figure just it rebelling out. Rebelling all the time. It's, it's, it's literally Everyone's yelling at each other. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And, and, I mean, I agree. Like what you said, Joe, it's like so true. Like when they were that team, that's what made them fun. That's what even the casual observer really enjoyed about Atlanta United. And even now, Pat, you know, beyond Frank DeBoer, he's gone and Stephen Glass is trying to manage his team. When I watch them play, I'm like, God, they, they go backwards so, so often now it's mm-hmm. like, and that, and, and that is to me as a player, I understand it. Like, especially when you're in a tough spot. Um, you know, one of my last years in college was just so bad. We did not have a good year. And I remember playing games thinking like, I'm not good. You know, like we don't feel confident. Like you just don't want to make a mistake. You don't, you don't take your guy on. You don't want to be the guy that then the coach is like, all right, you're, I need, you know, you're out, you know, I need to make a change. And I'm seeing that now. And I think every there, there's this like there are moments throughout these matches where instead of going forward, they'll just go backwards and kind of regroup over and over again. Yeah. And to use a good example, Atalanta, who, you know, almost gets to a semifinal of the Champions League, a small club um, with with, uh, you know, rich history, but they're just not a big club in Italy. Mm-hmm. And one of their players, I don't remember who it was, um, but he told the story, you know, during the Champions League run that their coach, you know, Gasparini does not allow them to pass backwards. It, he does not allow it. And if you watch Atalanta, they don't do it. <laughs> it's like, <laughs> and if they do, it's like whoever gets it immediately goes forward. You know, you better be in a real emergency in order to play backwards. And Atlanta United is not, they're not doing that. They're still to, to Joe's point. It's like they have too much time. And then they start kind of just like playing safe, going lateral, going backwards. Uh, and so that, that's a hurdle. That's a hurdle for the players and the, and the coaching staff. I think we've played a lot of uh, we should be the manager. They they need to just hire the three of us, you know, do it like a do it like a an English club. That's like a non-professional, you know, uh, like yeah. multiple managers. I get to do the press conferences and just like quip the entire time. I'm not going to be helpful, but that'll be my usefulness there. 
something that Sebastian Blanco told me before he tore his ACL. God, that was awful. Uh, ter- yeah, was, you know, I, I, I interviewed him a week ago and, and yeah. I, I, I tweeted today. He really sounded like a guy that was like, he knew this was his moment. Like he had not settled. He had overcome all the stuff and he's finally like a legit star. And then he te- tears his ACL on Sunday. But one thing that he told me, um, we were talking about fans, you know, just in general fans in the U S fans in South America, whatever. And he was like, you know, what really irritates me? This is Sebastian Blanco. He tells me, you know, what really irritates me is just fans that think that this is easy. Yeah. That what we do is easy. That it's just like, just do this and you'll win. Just play this way. <laughs> you know? <laughs> yeah. Uh, and that's what we're doing right now. That's what, literally what we're doing. But again, he was like, Oh, I know that's your job. And, and, that, and it's the fans job to, to critique, but, it is irritating to think that we just can just come out here and, and, and make whatever change and we're going to win. So well, could they that's do a it. podcast? So <laughs> right, <laughs> that's what I doubt it. That's what I always gets it. me when you hear fans like yelling at players to run. It's like, well, they've been running for <laughs> 70 minutes and they're really tired. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but, uh, yeah. yeah. All yeah, right. And, and, and I'll say this, I'll, I'll, I'll end here for where you guys can, can close it out. But like, not to pinpoint or, or point fingers at players, but like Emerson Hyman, who, listen, I think he's a good player. I think he has a role. I just don't know what it is right now. I think it's been, it's been difficult for him and even Frank DeBoer and now Stephen Glass to figure out what is the best role for him. And, you know, to hear Jeff Lorenowitz tell us on Saturday that he does so many things for the club. He does so many things for that team during games. And I think I know what Jeff is doing or what he's referring to, because there are moments where, they just need to find a player to get on the ball and Emerson can be that guy. He'll mm-hmm. like kind of get on the ball. He'll, he's, 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 his composure is really good and he'll kind of play it and they'll play on. But is that what they want from Emerson Hyman? Cause sometimes I'm like, when I see that happening, I, I'm thinking, get forward, go, go get faster. And he's just not that type of player. So that's another conundrum that they have clearly a talented player, you know, good on the ball, but what is his role? Like, what is it, what is it going, what is it going to happen with Emerson Hyman? in the future with, with Atlanta United. Yeah. Uh, that actually leads me to, or reminds me of something that I had asked him uh, last week, I think. Um, Cause I was asking him to kind of describe Mateus Rosetto to kind of hear from his perspective, what kind of player he is and, and things like that. And he said that there is, he, he referred to the two of them playing together as dual eights, which um, yeah. to me is like, you need to have more defined roles for players in midfield. Like you can't just have like, that's just not enough. I think, yeah. especially if you're not playing a, a like an attacking midfielder directly in front of them. It's just, I don't know. I think that they could clarify those roles a little bit. And I think that Hyman is just, he's kind of like the Brooks Lennon of the midfield where he's like this player who's good and fine enough technically. um, But at the end of the day, isn't going to really take a ton of risks. Isn't going to do, you know, make something special happen. Um, we saw I, there was a little bit of it last year, but it just hasn't really if been he's seen. Much. Up. Yeah, yeah, yeah. When he, yeah, when he was playing like in the Campionas Cup, he had a great combination with Dion Pereira, like yeah. <laughs> Hyman and Pereira. <laughs> <Dion> Pereira. <laughs> yeah, um, but it, I mean that just goes to show that like you don't need to be some super talented players to do some of these things sometimes, but you just need that yeah. confidence and that kind of um, feeling that faith from your manager and your teammates to be able to pull those things off. Well, that's the thing. We're talking about expectations and all of that always comes back to these guys are making way more money than me to do this thing. And that's going to follow Emerson <laughs> Hyman for a long ass oh, yeah. while he's in Atlanta. Uh, yep. Just because you look at that contract, 
contract and you look at the people that did not get similar contracts, maybe even lesser contracts uh, that are now maybe, I don't know, playing for DC United. Um, <laughs> so those kind of things are going to follow him. And, and, uh, I don't know. I, I'm That's interested true. to see where Emerson ends up one tactically and positionally, but, but his kind of legacy and role um, hasn't quite veered toward like Chris McCann status as far as being the most overplayed guy <laughs> on the team. Uh, Cause he is obviously a little more, a little more crisp, a little more talented than that. But at the same time, um, it's going to be interesting as we go along with Emerson. Yeah. I'll say that for sure. It's going to be fascinating. Like just, I think the next six months for this team in terms of what they do in the yeah. transfer market and everything is going to be really interesting to watch. Blow it up. I agree 100%. Blow it <laughs> up. Um, <laughs> Speaking of blowing things up, uh, Felipe, blow up your spot a little bit. Uh, you got anything coming out anytime soon that folks should be aware of? Oh, uh, well, I will. Let's see. The, the app, if you are a subscriber, and please subscribe to The Athletic because uh, we do Me? it for you. We write for you guys. Thank yeah. you. Um, it, I, I honestly believe that, and, and I mean that, that please subscribe because that's we, we are independent journalists. We, we work for the readers. So, um yeah, check out the app. If you haven't updated your app, update your app today. And there's a new feature called Real Time. Um, and what that is, is you're going to find the writers that you follow, the authors that you follow. We're going to be there essentially writing briefs, writing like quick news bits uh, that perhaps we would normally do on Twitter. Um, and now we're going to be doing a little bit more of that on the app. You can still engage. You can comment. Uh, so that's kind of a cool new feature. And there's like a new redesign. So check out the app, update it, check it out. And of course, follow me on Twitter at Felipe Carr. Follow the Athletic Soccer at the Athletic SCCR. Thank you. Anything to get me off of Twitter is is good with me. I'm trying. I'm, I'm literally. <laughs> no tr- I'm trying to use it less. I'm trying to use social media less. Yeah. I have. We. You know. We have to with our the nature of our jobs. But mm-hmm. yeah, it's been it's been rough here. It's been it's been rough to that Orlando fans back in the mentions too because they're all upset we celebrated uh, a goal or something like that. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> Oh god! We didn't even th- yeah, talk friend, about that. No, man. <laughs> it was so. <laughs> I thought it was weird. I, I, I honestly, considering the history between Orlando City and Atlanta United, especially the rivalry on social media and like what that became between the clubs and the fans and all mm-hmm. that. Like sometimes it got creative, sometimes it was pretty toxic. But whatever the case, you knew that it was going to happen on on social media, and it just felt so weird when that, when Orlando got the win. Like nothing really happened. I think, <laughs> yeah. I think Orlando s- sent something of like their logo coming through the ceiling of Mercedes-Benz <laughs> Stadium, but it, but there was no like it. Nothing went viral. No one was really talking yeah. about it. Like the win was the big deal, but everything else that surrounded that rivalry. And again, it's because of 2020. I know mm-hmm. it just kind of just like went under. Yeah. It was kind of like brushed under the rug. And okay, next game. Mm-hmm. Just weird, weird stuff for this season is so bizarre. I would like to say I think we're just better at them than social media uh, for the most part. And I, I think we can. I think DSS can definitely take some credit for uh, yeah, the game. For sure. A few things. In that rivalry. <laughs> Yes, um, no doubt. Which is why we've been super quiet lately on, uh, on Match Day, <laughs> um, because we know it's coming. Um, so, no, it was weird. It really was weird to to celebrate um, a very, very fluky win uh, or a tie that kind of felt we like a win. want to draw. Felt like a win. We want to yeah, draw. Yeah. <laughs> we want to draw. Um, you know, um, strange times. But uh, I think the biggest takeaway there is that um, Adam John is is the next great striker and MLS. Um, and that's kind of all we need to really say about that. Joe Patrick, you got anything to plug? Uh, no. Cool. 
<laughs> I do. Um, yeah. If you guys haven't subscribed to the newsletter yet, it's a daily kickoff. Go ahead and do that. I'll ramble about things and then sometimes talk about things I have no idea about, like the MLS Youth Development Program, which I definitely wrote about today. I don't know what it is. I definitely wrote about it. Um, seems we do good. have one of those on DS on uh, Dirty South Soccer. It's probably it much more competent and coherent. Um, go no, check well, you out. got actual interviews, so yours is yours is probably one A. That's that's true. Um, anyway, um, I do have a bunch of features coming out right now that I'm kind of starting to get rolling with that. So kind of get into new role. They're all sad. Nice. They're all really sad. <laughs> uh, oh, then you you would you would do great for the the Athletic UK. They write a lot of sad pieces. I, I'm here for it, guys. Just hit me up. Overcoming yeah. adversity left and right. So much adversity. Yeah. <laughs> so much adversity, guys. And I um I'm handling it fine. Um, but go check those out. I've got a few features out. Um. Got some good stories about um, supporter in San Jose who's dealing with lung cancer. Um, I got a feature coming out today um, about a, a, a kid in, in Miami who uh, recently passed away from childhood cancer. Um, have a good feature, I think, on, on Stephen Linhart. If you guys remember him, he talked to me and talked my ear off for a while and then asked me what my purpose in life was as I <laughs> interviewed him, which was fascinating. I, I tried to answer. Um, and yeah, I uh, got more stuff coming out later this week too. Uh, Portland Timbers are doing some good stuff over in Rwanda. Uh, so yeah, check out, check out the mothership for that stuff. It's fun and sad. Just really sad. Go Sam. Much like Atlanta United right now. It's, it's a fitting, fitting tribute. I think, um, anything else where y'all, we get out of here y'all? Nope. We're all good. Good man. Th- thanks again for the invite guys. I always enjoy it. We'll yeah, do it again. Really we'll do it again soon. Always. For sure. For sure. All right. Bye y'all. I was lying on the ground.